Well, the cold has gotten a lot of stage time today, but nobody's yet to say um, Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> Which means that today I'm going to be talking about love with powerful and detailed anecdotes from my marriage. I'm so glad you guys knew that that wasn't real. It's very nice to be known. That's not what we're talking about today. In fact, uh, we are in Mark chapter 2, continuing our series through the book of Mark, and this is the second week of a two-part mini-series that we've very cutely and cleverly titled The Four Whys, and here's why that is. Well, in chapter 2 of Mark, the religious leaders ask four questions of Jesus, really trying to wrap their mind around what it is he's up to and fit his activity within their paradigm. And they ask him four very pointed why questions. And last week was the first half of the chapter, and Mike brought us the questions why does he speak in this way, forgiving sins? That was the first thing they wanted to know. And then the second, even more scandalous maybe, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And like I said, neither of these things were able to be jammed inside their mental paradigm of the appropriate. And as they were rationalizing these things, they thought, all right, at best, best case scenario, he's scandalous in his activity, worst case scenario, and what we think is actually going on is he's blasphemous in his activity. And today we're going to hear the second two whys, both which continue to rub and push their paradigm to the point where they can't take it anymore. I mean, we're in chapter two of Mark, and we're only six verses away from the first time that they suggest it would just be better if he were dead. We should probably just kill him. So today we'll be in Mark 2, 18 through 28. Um, and before we get into our text, um, I don't know, I was just thinking, I scarcely feel prepared to handle the weight of actually encountering the Word of God. Uh, and that could just be, I'm busy on Sundays, maybe I'm projecting feelings onto you. But before we do this, I want to take a moment in silence, take a breath, invite God into the interior spaces of your life, and let him speak. So let's be quiet for a moment, and then we'll read our text together. Lord, speak, we are listening. Now hear a reading from Mark 2, verses 18 through 28. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples were fasting. So they came to Jesus and said, Why do the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot fast while the bridegroom is with them, can they? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they do not fast. But the days are coming when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and at that time they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from the new, pulls away from it, the new from the old, and the tear becomes worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the skins will be destroyed. Instead, new wine is poured into new wineskins, 
Jesus was going through the grain fields on a Sabbath, and his disciples began to pick some heads of wheat as they made their way. So the Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is against the law on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions were hungry? How he entered the house of God when Abithar was a high priest and ate the sacred bread, which is against the law for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. For this reason, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Father, in this brief moment of silence, we ask that once again you would speak to us about your word. Amen. All right, so we have our newest batch of whys, the the last two of the four that we're going to be looking at. The first being, why do the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And the second, why are you doing what is explicitly against the law on the Sabbath? And if I could whittle both of these down into a single sentence, kind of into one uh, cohesive sentiment, it would be, Why do you so blatantly disregard our rituals? In fact, if you're trying to posture yourself as the Messiah to these people, surely you would outpace us in pious activity, and yet we're outpacing you. You're the one falling behind, and yet you're the one calling yourself the Messiah. And, you know, immediately after I read those type of accusations, I kind of wanted to jump to Jesus' aid and stand in the place of the defense, you know, addressing these two questions specifically. And like, okay, well, first of all, fasting was only required one day a year on the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16 tells us that. And the Pharisees had taken it on themselves for public appearances to fast every Monday and every Thursday. And so this undue stipulation was truly just for their appearances and wasn't at all a law. They're really just asking, why don't you look as holy as we do? You should. We're the standard of piety in the day. And the second, why are you doing what's against the law on the Sabbath? Well, I thought that was just hilarious because in the law of Moses, picking grain with your hand was explicitly permitted. They just put a bunch of undue burdens around Sabbath, kind of building a wall around the Sabbath, adding stipulations. There were 36 of them. Again, so they wouldn't ever come even close to breaking the Sabbath. But what Jesus and his disciples does was not against the law. In fact, it was rather permitted. And I thought, well, that's my case. Open and closed. Jesus, you're welcome. (laughs) And Jesus' response was both more tactful than that, figure that out, but also a little bit more veiled in its initial intention. You know, in response to their questions, he doesn't say what I said, which I thought was a pretty fitting defense, but rather he just says three things that a normal person would never do. He says, you don't fast at a wedding feast. Like that, that's what would be inappropriate. You know, it's very much the like, hey, calories don't count at a party, ideal. 
And then he says, and, and you don't put a new cloth as a patch on an old tattered garment because then when it stretches and moves, well, then the patch tears away from the old garment and then the garment is even more tattered and worthless than it was before. And then the last thing that a normal sane person would never do that he's using in his stellar defense is you don't put new wine into old wine skins because when new wine starts to ferment, it expands the wine skin that it's in. And an old wineskin would already be expanded to its capacity. It would have grown brittle and very, very thin. And so new wine starting to ferment and expand in an old wineskin would, would quite literally burst through the bag. And then the bag's ruined and the wine is, is ruined as well. And then to bring it all home, he drops one of our very favorite one-liners. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for man. And so processing what I thought and made of his responses, I spent the entirety of my week writing a sermon about how ritual doesn't hold the weight of our reality and how the kingdom is far too big for our rituals, how we place too much trust in ritual and gravitate towards being an overly ritualistic people just like those irritating Pharisees. And I was, I was sure that that's what this text was saying. I was sure that that's what was in this message. But I became so unsettled because I was so comfortable with that idea. I didn't feel the least bit challenged by the content of this passage, nor the tenor of that message, which brought me face to face one sleepless night with only two real possibilities and that's that either I have figured out how to relate to ritual impeccably. Like, I've, I've got it. Or I missed what's in the text. And so I did something I don't ordinarily do. In fact, I've never done quite this dramatically before. Um, but yesterday, I did a hard 180 on what it was I was going to say and what it was I believed about this passage. You see, for me... And I imagine for some of you that this is just one of those passages that at our first pass, we just like so very much because it helps us justify the life that we're already living, right? Like we love finding the things that validate what we already want to and believe are true, further entrenching us deeper in our assumptions. And then when that happens... You know, we feel really good about ourselves because we have been proved right. And so all the time, we, we seek out those things that validate the life we're living and what we believe to be true because we feel so right. I mean, it's just like how I, I love and lap up like crazy. Of all things, articles written on NBA trade rumors because I want to believe in my heart of hearts that my team of choice, the Indiana Pacers, have this master plan and are playing 3D chess to assemble this all-star roster within the cap space that's going to establish them as a dynasty within the league for generations to come. And so these articles that, you know, posit hypothetical scenarios that could do just that, oh, I take them in all the time, even though I know they're essentially fiction. They're really just written by fans 
as a fun exercise, and I know that in no real room are any real team executives talking about these things, but it's just exceedingly easy to see what we're looking for. And in passages such as this, I want to see the Pharisees put in their place. I want to know that a swift and decisive defense is what meets them. And I also, frankly, want to hear that my lackadaisical posture towards Christian ritual and Christian disciplines is actually the right way to do it. But again, I honestly don't believe that's what's in this passage anymore. And I don't think that that's the message the Holy Spirit has for this church. Let's go back again and look once more. Remember, the two whys posed by the Pharisees to Jesus were, why aren't you fasting like the rest of us? And why are you doing what is against the law on the Sabbath? And you're not quite observing the Sabbath like we are. And notice in his response, he says very little, very, very little about the rituals themselves, I mean, he surely doesn't discount them, not once, but he talks about himself in parable and says, I am the bridegroom, I am the new cloth, I am the new wine, I am the king and the priest the bread was set out for, and I am Lord of the Sabbath. Essentially saying, friends, you've lost the narrative entirely. These rituals are just vehicles to see and connect with God. How lovely. But here is God in your midst, and the tragic irony is that these very vehicles that serve to connect you with me are serving as a hindrance to me. I'm in front of you, and you're missing it. But then he also doesn't quite throw the baby out with the bathwater like I thought he did. In fact, he reinforces the goodness and the necessity of these rituals in the life of his followers. In fact, he says there will be a time for fasting. That's coming. It's good. I want that to happen. And I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I mean, you surely wouldn't disregard and dismantle that which you're Lord over, right? And what he's saying here, I believe, and I think this is really key, is that yes, these rituals are for you. Fasting is for you. Sabbath is for you. But they're not about you. They're only fruitful in your life because they are fundamentally about me. And I think our stumbling point is that we have often equated for with about. Like, I do that that all the time. I'll be the first to admit it. I tend to pursue the things that make me feel best about God and then will ignore the things I don't think are quite as useful or as functional for me. I'll run through the filter of my preferences. Like, if Sabbath rest is for me, and Jesus said that it was, well, then I should consider on Sabbath how I like to rest, what I like to do, how I like to spend my time off. And then when that's the mentality, ritual and all of our spiritual disciplines over time morph into these things that are both for me and ultimately about my happiness. And then at the end of that, I have the gall to complain because I can't quite sense God like I used to or I can't really hear him that clearly anymore can't really see what he's up to. John Piper, 
said the most restorative thing for our souls, the single most restorative thing for our souls, and where we find the deepest sense of rest is in beholding splendor. And how ridiculous would it be to compare the splendor of my hobbies, the splendor of NBA trade rumor articles, with the splendor of God. And when we do recognize that the purest rest for our souls is to behold God in his splendor, it's then that we start to understand that these Christian rituals, these things we commit ourselves to, are for us because they're about him. He is the one who offers us restoration and rest through himself. And we also know that just as often as we discount ritual, we can also overreact. We can also try to generate some kind of feeling of spirituality, and we can fundamentally misuse ritual in our lives as well, because Christian disciplines are not the same thing as Christ himself. We can expect far too much from them. We can become very formulaic in how we approach them, and again, we can just use them as this very uh, systematic method in our lives to create a feeling that we're really excited and comfortable with. And that would be like saying, I'm going to walk on the moon simply because you put on a spacesuit. Like more has to be happening in order to accomplish what you want. Our rituals devoid of the person of Christ don't do anything. In fact, it's when we lose the narrative, forgetting Christ's central place in them, that we become just like the Pharisees then. Frustrated, deeply frustrated, incredibly legalistic, and then misuse what is fundamentally meant for our good. It's kind of like when I was, when I was a really young boy and I didn't fully understand like, how fishing worked yet. Like I knew, I knew the steps, like there needs to be bait on a hook, you need to like cast the line out as far as you can possibly muster, and then you need to stare intently at that little red bobber. Well, one, one summer we were at a lake, and we had run all out of bait, but I really wanted to keep fishing. And so I kind of rationalized as best as my little mind would allow me and thought, well, surely the hook still smells a lot like the bait. And surely that is good enough to attract fish to at least get close, and then if they get close to my hook, then maybe I can scoop them up with a net. Or maybe they'll just bite it because they like the smell. And so I cast my line out into the water and stared intently at my motionless bobber for the rest of the afternoon. And I think that is a haunting picture of the Christian life for a lot of us and how we engage these rituals that were given for us. And I think this is really important, and why I wanted to say this today was because Wednesday begins the season of Lent. I think as we stand on the cusp of what we hold up as a really sacred and meaningful time, and we place expectations and what that can do for us individually and as a church body, it's now that we really need to deeply consider the relation we currently hold with ritual. Because it's possible that this Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, 
Some of us might show up, get ashes smudged on our forehead, and we'll, we'll even commit to giving something up for the next 40 days, and maybe even taking something better up for the 40 days as well, and pay it no mind whatsoever. Give it no second thought as to why we're actually doing these things or who they're actually and most fundamentally for. And it's in this equation that our ritual, our season of Lent, will hold no weight for any of us. And then it's also possible that some of us will coast through the season without much intentionality at all. Um, Because the idea of having ashes smudged on your face doesn't sound like it could possibly relate to growing nearer to God. Or that giving something up for 40 days, or that intermittent fasting, that's not really something I'm interested in. And after all, he did say these things were for me, so I kind of set the standard for which disciplines I think are best to participate in. And so this could be one of your experiences of the season of Lent that we're just about to enter. And you know, we, we hold it up so high, and then if this is your experience, you'll be deeply frustrated. In fact, there's, there's two, these, these are two altering paths that lead to the same payoff. Uh, Bailey, you can throw the first little flow chart up there. See, when we posture ourselves to expect too much from just pure ritual without any intentionality, <clears throat> then we start to wonder, well, I did X and nothing happened. I put my scented hook in the water and my bobber never moved. So I'm, I'm not supposed to be feeling this way. Like, I did the right things. And we feel this frustration that's generated in us because the church keeps telling us this is a sacred and meaningful season, but nothing is happening. Even though I'm doing the things, I feel positively, spiritually empty. And then the other chart that leads to the same place is one of placing yourself in front of ritual, making too much of the fact that they're for you, and you lean into your own interests with the season. You know, these things were made for me, so I'm going to choose how I best connect to a religious sensation. And that often will leave you feeling stunted, Maybe you've felt that before. Like, I don't, I don't feel much of anything happening in me. We are, we're going through a sacred season, or so they say, and I feel nothing. Same payoff. I feel spiritually empty. And we're not just in danger of this happening during Lent. We're in danger of this happening all the time. Um, and it's likely that at some point, if you've been a Christian for more than a minute, that you've experience both of these things. And then when, when one path didn't work, you tried very hard to course correct and you jumped onto the other one only to find that that path leads you to the same place that you were frustrated with. And it's in that moment we experience a real crisis of faith. And this crisis leads us to ask hard questions, most notably, does this even work? Does this even do anything? Is there anything to this at all? So it's then and now 
I think we need to start to reorient our thinking a bit and become a little bit more imaginative in the role that Christ's presence plays in these rituals. I hate to whittle everything down to this, but I will. The reality of ritual is that it has made us to worship. If the payoff of our ritual isn't worship, then it's not for anything. These things, these Christian rituals, which we're going to do on Wednesday are good only because they are a vehicle, but still they're not a person. They were given for us, but they are about him. And again, this makes sense of why Jesus' response to the Pharisees' accusations was to just talk about himself, was because they were missing the person behind the ritual. Guys, you're frustrated. You're irritated with me. I sense that. But I'm the bridegroom, the one you're looking for. But I'm the new cloth. I'm the new wine. I am the king and the priest the bread was set out for. And yes, I am Lord of this Sabbath. At the very end of every sermon, uh, we conclude with communion, right? It's a very important ritual to the church as a whole, but let's also not kid ourselves that, you know, this, this wafer and this little splash of grape juice by themselves, void of the person of Christ, will do nothing for you other than put two more calories of weight on you. And yet, that being true, we also believe that routinely abstaining from this meal will be to your detriment as well. So how do we carve a path through those two realities? I think the Westminster Confession of Faith sums this up in a really, really lovely way. It talks about how we set this bread and wine apart from its ordinary use for a holy use. And Christ is spiritually present in this meal. He spiritually presides over what's happening. When you come down this aisle and you get this in a minute, Christ will be spiritually present in that meal. And it's in his spiritual presence that this wafer and grape juice are transformed into genuine, authentic, and mysterious nourishment for you as the believer. When Christ is spiritually present in our rituals and we tune ourselves to that reality, we're not left at the end of the line with, I feel spiritually empty because we're spiritually there with him. So in a moment, I'm going to pray and then we're going to take this meal together, remembering that yes, this is for us. This is fundamentally given for us, but this is fundamentally not about us. And that formula is played out in the way that he even presents the meal to us. And I I love it. He says, take and eat. Have it. It's for you. This is my body. He is fundamentally the gift. Let's pray together. Jesus, forgive us for trying to have a robust spiritual life without you as a part of it. 
Forgive us for not trusting your words that you have, by your own merit and activity, done everything for us. And we try to generate this for ourselves. May we now, in the season of Lent and going forward, reject that idea always. Jesus, we pray in your name because it's the only name we can pray in. Amen.